Hello there everybody and welcome to another in conversation uh, version of the the podcast we've got what I'm sure is going to be a brilliant convo coming up I just wanted to share no pressure guys by the way the last one was dynamite <laughs> um just thought I would just share with you a wee bit quickly uh, about what's been going on this week I've been uh, flying solo with the old parenting duties my darling wife <laughs> is away on a week-long songwriting retreat uh, that she actually runs for other writers. And it's one of those weeks where everything that uh, can go wrong did go wrong. Um, we've had sickness bugs, we've had them off school. It's been quite intense and I've learned a few things about uh, myself as a father, I have to say. Um, the first one being, uh, when you're kind of buying up half of the Amazon toy inventory and hope that you're going to be able to distract your children so that you can hear yourself think, you quickly learn actually all the children are interested in is you. <laughs> and if you are not available, then they're interested in whatever you are interested in. So the kids want to play with house keys. They want to play with remote controls that work. They want to play with uh, cinnamon-flavoured personal lubricant. Right? <laughs> These are the things that the kids are into. My kids would run by Mickey fucking Mouse to get to a tampon bin. <laughs> so I've been cleaning up Whitey every other night out of a top bunk bed. And then I decided to swap the kids' beds around because the one that was Whitey was Whitey so much. And they stopped Whitey and the one that ended up in the top bunk bed started Whitey that night. So it's been hilarious. And then there's the bed wetting, you know, the wee one, adding about a bit of urine into the mix. <laughs> Pishy Sunak, uh, I've started calling her, <laughs> which I think perfectly braids um, the necessary level of humour and the appropriate level of shame to incentivise behavioural change. So that's just a wee update on where I'm at, folks. Welcome to Darren McGarvey's Common People. I am, of course, Darren McGarvey. We're joined today by two guests. Uh, the first one is Rachel Monroe, who is an entrepreneur. And I've written a kind of wanky job description that I think you'll appreciate. Culinary engineer. <laughs> <laughs> She's been frying chips all day. Uh, and Rachel is a recent participant in the new license fee pair funded Gordon Ramsay vehicle, Future Food Stars. So we'll be hearing all about her experience of being on a kind of food themed reality show. What was it like behind the scenes? Some of the response that Rachel received from uh, the public and all of that good stuff. Um, how are you, by the way, Rachel? I'm good, buddy. All right, aye. And uh, also joining uh, me today is Ian McMillan, a great name, a great name, a great Scottish sounding name, isn't it, for an author? Um, so Ian's uh, debut book, which I have here, The Boy With The Thorn and His Side, I've read that, it's very, very good. I'll let him elaborate a wee bit more on uh, what it's about. But one of the things that uh, really struck me, apart from the quality of the work, was the amount of response that Ian's had locally, particularly from working class readers, yeah. uh, because they feel that it so authentically captures their experiences in a particular time period around football, culture, music, fashion, we wee bit of violence in there as well for the troops. Uh, so we're just going to start with a couple of basic opening questions and then we'll just see how the conversation develops. So Rachel, I want to start with you. Uh, I think I'm going to ask you, 
basically what everybody watching wants to know how much of a cunt is Gordon Ramsay? <laughs> and uh, if he's not a cunt and it is all an act, does the fact that it's all an act not make him more of a cunt? Where does Gordon Ramsay sit on the cunt spectrum? As far as cunts go, I don't <laughs> think he's that bad, to be honest. But again, like you said, I think a lot of it is character based. So you get snippets, you're only with him for brief moments and the brief moments off camera completely sound. So he just kind of emerges like like literally, the Wizard of Oz from just behind a curtain. Just flies in in his helicopter, does his shit, like one take, never falters on that, like performance basis, you've got to give him his credit where it's due. Like he comes in, smashes it and leaves. Aye, I mean, to be fair, they are quite basic pieces to camera he's doing, isn't it? <laughs> it's not a Shakespearean soliloquy. I would be hoping they'd be hitting that in a one take. But anyway, what I was wanting to ask you first and foremost was, uh, you, you're an entrepreneur, you run a business. Talk to us a wee bit about that, just to give the viewers and listeners a bit of context for what you're actually like when you're not uh, on the telly. Um, so I've got a coffee shop based in air. I've had it for three years, opened, well, got the keys in February and the pandemic hit in March. So I couldn't open until July. And it's just been like a mad roller coaster. So yeah, just been doing that for the past three years and had a drink one night and the application came up for the show and I did it and just went for it. Amazing. And what's the name of your, your cafe? Time. Like the time. Herb. The reason I asked you that is because I always struggle with how to pronounce that. Like theme. Ah, you get it all the time. Aye, aye. Theme. So I was asking you that for self-serving yeah, reasons, time. to be perfectly honest, but also a wee bit of promotional help. <laughs> uh, the, the next thing I wanted to ask you was, um, you, 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 I've known, I've known you for many years. Obviously, full disclosure, I know both, uh, both the guests actually go way back. We're not all best mates or anything, but certainly a good rapport and understanding of each other. Um, you, you don't strike me as the kind of person who's signing up for a show like that based on a desire to be consistently publicly visible. I felt as if maybe there was a kind of shrewd business motive behind it as well, or to see how you would handle yourself in that kind of highly competitive environment. I might be wrong. What was it that kind of drew you into it, or was it just because you were a bit pissed? No, genuinely, you hit the nail on the head. It was strictly for financial reasons, like, obviously, for what we discussed off camera, like about the rising costs in electricity, food, um, the cost of living crisis and all of that. So it was really just for that. I don't want, I'm not a culture vulture, I'm not somebody that like is impressed by celebrities. It was nothing to do with that. It was strictly just financial. But a lot of the people that were on the show, I think it was probably more about getting clout, whereas it wasn't for me. So it was kind of hard being in that realm because I felt as if I was there for authentic reasons, but it felt like people progressed further, the ones that were there for maybe the wrong reasons yeah i like that the claws have come out so quickly in the interview do you know what i mean i can depend on you for that to be <laughs> honest rachel um so we'll come back to that uh, in a minute right i just want to bring ian in um uh, your book it was the first book in a while that i've read all the way through uh i was actually getting up very early in the morning to get some reading in because there would be no distractions and i could absorb it a bit better and uh, once I got into the kind of rhythm of it and the character, main character, Frankie, um, then it got much, much easier for me. And I'm just talking about it as an exercise in reading, not even a reflection mm -hmm. of, of the writing. Uh, in my book, Poverty Safari, my first book, I, I, I have a kind of, uh, I have a sort of preamble in the book. And the first line is, people like me don't write books. And I sort of elaborate on the conflict that I faced as a working class kid. Uh, with a desire to write, a desire to be in the arts and all of that stuff, but not really thinking it was for people who sounded like me or had my sort of experiences. So when you set out kind of embarking on this process of writing this amazing book, 
Did you feel any conflict about that, or, or was it just something that you were compelled to do nonetheless? Well, it's a bit weird, actually. When you said at the start, like, author Ian McMillan, I'm still kind of looking behind me, like, who is it? Because <laughs> I, I, don't, I still don't see myself as being an author, and people ask me, oh, your book, and I still need to have kind of take two, really, and think, oh, that's right, I wrote a book. I don't think I embarked on it with the intention of being an author or writing a book. I just kind of started writing during lockdown just to kind of fill the time, really. Um, which I have done a wee bits and bobs before, right? I've done some magazine articles and fanzine articles and stuff like that, but I never really took the time to stick with anywhere. It was a bit of a longer exercise, so I suppose the lockdown gave me a bit more luxury time. And as I was writing it, it started taking a bit more shape and it became a wee bit easier, I suppose, when I had a game plan in place. Because to start off, I thought, we'll just write one chapter about this guy who's in a counselling room and this counsellor's trying to untangle him, right? I'll leave it at that. But then it started evolving a little bit more. And it took shape. And I found when the idea came, the writing part was dead easy. But getting the idea was quite difficult at times, do you know what I mean? So basically that's why the majority is just a reflection of my own life, my own experiences, because I didn't need to make very much it up. I just had to tweak it a little bit. Um, so I, I don't think I had any of the thoughts while I was writing it. However, when I was bringing it out, it was a different matter though. How it was going to be perceived, what were people going to say about me, who does he think he is, or fucking Billy Big Biscuits has brought a book out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All that stuff. And you need to kind of get over that. Do you know what I mean? You need to just say yourself, right, and put it out. And I remember putting this post out on social media initially, covering the book, saying it's out, blah, 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 and sitting back and waiting for the tsunami of hatred hitting your way. Like, who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. But it was not like that at all. Do you know what I mean? There, there's obviously a couple of bits and bobs on maybe the reviews on Amazon that's got constructive criticism, which I'm fine with. It's, I'm fine with. Um, majority it was good feedback. And it just, it kind of taught me a lot about I don't know about how much self-doubt I was suffering for, but it did depend on people telling me, it's all right for you to do this. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can identify with that 100%. Uh, I want to just kind of elaborate uh, for people who have not read the book, or maybe their appetites whetted a little bit just by us talking about it. It draws from, like most authors or writers, it draws a lot for the kind of reservoir of your experiences in youth, uh, working class life, football culture, music, fashion and all of that. But I wonder if you could just kind of give us the, the synopsis and don't feel pressure to be too brief. It's not like an elevator pitch I'm asking you to do. <laughs> you know, just kind of convey to people reading, w watching, uh, you know, what, what the book is about. I'll, I'll give you an extended synopsis then, right? Basically, when I started writing the book, like I say, I, I start the first scene in a counselling room where a guy's trying to untangle his life and how his mental health's a bit ghost and he's struggling with drink, etc. And then it's a bit of reflection back on that and looking over his life and how the path got me where he is in his late 20s, right? Which is a very similar story to myself, right? I stopped drinking when I was 29. And when you get into the field of recovery thereafter, there's a kind of period where you need to look back at the past and say, right, what's went wrong here? What do I need to change if I want to move forward? What bits of me are adding to this problem? Do you know what I mean? You need to look at that. So. What I did was I looked back at my own life and I thought, right, well, let's just document it for primary school onwards. So if I'm looking at kind of primary school, I thought, what was my mindset like there? How obsessive am I about stuff? Do you know what I mean? Can I see myself knowing reflection has been different to some of my classmates? Do you know what I mean? Where was our seeking connection? Where was our attention seeking in the class at school, for example? And stuff like that. But I would, when I was writing it, I'd have a theme in the back of my mind, think, right, I'm going to look at this, but it's going to be about dysfunctional relationships. This bit here... He's looking for connection. This bit here is he's drawn by fear at this point in time. And I'm looking at the demise yet. But 
partly what I did through that was I weaved in the culture that I grew up in. And I grew up at school through the 80s when I was at secondary school. And the biggest kind of football change at the time was the casuals came about. And that was something that caught my attention straight away. So just for anybody out there who doesn't know what you mean by that, just explain what the casuals is. How how old is your audience or how young is your audience? <laughs> well, we might have viewers for we might have viewers for different places. So it's just it's just it's just to make sure. Just right. to make sure. The the football casual was a culture that came about in the very early eighties, right? It came about kind of post skinhead mod punk was the previous kind of youth culture, I would suppose. So you get kind of bothered boys who have been seen at football matches in the seventies and very early eighties, who would be seen as causing trouble on the terraces. But as a sort of backlash to that, a new football craze came about in the fashion world where it was called football casual, where it was almost anti-fashion, the look that came in, where young guys would dress in a very conservative fashion, firstly, allow them access into football matches. Because if you were turning up at a football stadium, you had Doc Martin boots thrown up to your knees, and your skinhead haircut, the police were just going, you're no getting in, you're no getting in, arrest him, blah, blah, blah. So they were very easily identifiable and this new fashion craze came about where it was quite a conservative look. Initially, the first look was golf jumpers, for example. Everybody was wearing Pringles, Leyland Scots. And it's and to throw the scent off. <laughs> and that is sort of basically like, like getting suited and booted Aye. for your day in court almost. It was very much like, very working class in that respect, though, where it was very aspirational to wear this stuff because it was very expensive. The biggest change I remember in the fashion at the time is, I mean, I was a school kid at the time, right? so I was buying this stuff with my paper money, right? Was how expensive it was. Suddenly, the price of clothes became three times more expensive than they were before. And there was some items you looked at and thought, I'll never own one of them, it's so expensive. So the look became one, pastel colours, people grew their hair a bit longer, um, bleached jeans, big white trainers and stuff like that, which is kind of taken for granted now, right? But... Prior to this, people wore training shoes strictly for doing sporting, right? You'd have had running shoes, you'd have had ones for playing football and you'd have had tennis shoes. People didn't wear training shoes out and about before that, right? This is before your era, guys, right? So genuinely need to really wear trainers out and about. Mm -hmm. So even wearing trainers out and about was a bit of a statement in itself. So you had young boys or guys in their late teens who were wearing very conservative fashion looks to get into the football. And it was quite an effeminate look a lot of it. I mean, people would question your sexuality if you're wearing pink back then. That's the truth of the matter. Yeah. So it was quite an effeminate look. So this is when it kind of kicked off with the fashion craze for me. So I was introduced to it when I was maybe 13, 14, got to football matches. And the main attraction for me was this fashion element to it and the camaraderie that involved. So if you were going to football at the time, you wanted to look the part of these guys because what I think misunderstood a lot with the kind of general public looking out there it's because you get loads of newspaper and sort of news loads of clips on the news and stuff kind of generally england hooligans abroad throwing white plastic chairs about and it's kind of lagger look kind of looks but to me it was never really like that to me the violence was a part of it but it wasn't the main focus the main focus was really camaraderie and the fashion was so important to people do you know what i mean and the extent young people would go to obtain these chosen items of fashion um and it would move on fairly quickly thereafter. It would go through various looks. Like initially it would be like sporty, then it would move on to maybe like a dressed down look, and then it would be maybe Italian stuff would come in out of the kind of Panan narrow look. And, and would you say that this, and I'm going to bring you in a minute, Rachel, so prepare yourself. Um, would you say that this culture was 
of equal importance to some people as the football itself because there's a cracking line in the book and I don't want to spoil it but there's a cracking mini revelation in the book where you know you find out there's a character that's not actually that interested in the <laughs> football after the whole thing leading up to it do you know what I mean and that was like an eye-opener for me like this culture in and of itself is an event is an attraction rather than the football I would say it was more important than the football I mean the guys who were in the casual scene support their football team and they love their football team but it's more about the camaraderie and a day with your mates i mean the amount of guys who travel up to aberdeen for example they don't go to the game they'll just stay in the pub or they'll be on the terraces and i've seen guys sitting playing cards on the terraces back in the 80s and they're really looking at the bits on the pitch the the match was just a focus for 90 minutes for us to gather i feel like even the day we mean my mates and i started they were much much older now and the fit was really just a, a kind of communal thing for the guys to gather every saturday we still like put our best gear on a Saturday afternoon and got to see the match. But the football was important, but not as important as the camaraderie, the casual culture, I would say. Uh, now, I'm trying to think of a good segue, right, to bring it back to you, Rachel. And I, I think the jump off point is probably with <clears> Ian <throat> in the beginning there was talking about his uh, anxiety around what is the response going to be to him presenting an aspect of himself, his creativity publicly. And one of the things that I not noticed <clears throat> about... Uh, almost every episode that you were featured in was there were some quite strong reactions, uh, critical reactions. Uh, I remember pushing back against some of them on, on Twitter because I couldn't see it and I thought, is this just biased because I've got a bit of context for her? Is there a bit of sexism at play? Undoubtedly there is. And is there a bit of accent prejudice at play as well? I wonder just like from your point of view, how much of what we see on that programme is a reflection of the full context of what's going on? Because there definitely was a desire to portray each person in a certain kind of light editorially, wasn't there? Well, definitely. Like, I mean, for each episode, we probably filmed 45 hours so they could carve the narrative any way that they want. And my biggest issue with it was the fact that I went in there as a creative, but you can't exercise any of that creativity due to the rules around it. So for me, I have had anxiety for the whole time waiting on it coming out because I wondered how I would be carved. And because I am very outspoken and don't mince my words, I knew that I would be carved in that way. So the anxiety was high and all the fears that I had around it pretty much unfolded and in how, every episode. How, how much uh, delving through the responses to the episodes did you do or did you keep a kind of distance so from we were kind of told not to go on twitter um not to go online first week i thought the episode was actually all right so i thought oh, i've kind of nailed it it's fine all my anxiety is worth for nothing week two went to shit i went on twitter and i decided to not go back on it because it, it really did affect my mental health what sort of things were you seeing if you don't mind i don't no, want no, you no. going no, back no it's to fine it, but... um just folk basically saying that i was a cow um outspoken a piece of shit, a shame on Scotland and all that stuff, which I mean, it's pretty hard to read when you're doing the toilet at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, You don't really yeah. want to start your day like that. To be accused of shaming a pretty shameful country. Nation, That means that you're, all, you're really high on the shame aye. charts. So, but I mean, it's always easy for t someone to sit there and create an opinion based on a snippet of information, but it was, it was pretty hard to take. And how did you get on with the other uh, contestants or participants rather, because on one hand, there's the natural connections that you'll make. There'll be some people you'll get along with, some people you won't. But I mean, underscoring all is a dog-eat-dog -dog competitive 
the imperative underneath the whole thing, which I think would kind of place a certain kind of strain on your personality on how you can t connect with others. And how much of that was was conscious as you're fulfilling these different tasks that they're setting you? So when we first met, like within the first six hours, we weren't allowed to talk to each other. It all wanted to be captured on film for authenticity. So obviously when you see people, you kind of judge them based on what they're wearing, like the music that you can maybe hear them listening to on their, them, their phone or whatever. But when we did start talking, I kind of picked my, the two people that I liked and I hung about with them, didn't really speak to the rest of them. But you're travelling all week living with these people then having to carry that into a workspace which we would never normally do so i found that really challenging but i was always myself the whole way through it i never i never changed i was me and that's when i left i felt like i did myself proud because i didn't i didn't change to be liked or disliked i probably am disliked for the right reasons and liked for the right reasons and that for me is important but i had probably say 80 percent of them i wouldn't speak to again and I've got my other two solids that I do keep in touch with all the time. I I I, I did. Um, it's it's interesting because it's one of the most addictive forms of entertainment, reality TV, and it's kind of it's the sort of it's like television's answer to the sausage. Do you know what I mean? It's like it tastes kind of good, but once you know how it's made, it's, it's kind of hard to enjoy it. And so when you're behind the scenes of the thing, it must be kind of uh, you must be disabused of some notions of what actually goes on in TV in terms of, ah, right, okay. Oh, I was completely naive, man. Like, completely naive going into it. I thought, I'm going to go here, be able to exercise all my creativity. I'm going to be able to showcase what I'm about, all my great ideas, and it's just not like that at all. Had I have known what it was going to be like now, I wouldn't have applied. And that's just the bare bones of it. I just wouldn't have because, as I said, I felt like I was portrayed a certain way, which I don't think that I am and I couldn't really get to maximise my full potential on there, and that's what I was really there to do. If anything, I feel it was maybe being a negative. There was one uh, episode that I, I seen, and there was a bit of a disagreement between some of you about, I can't remember, I think it was around pizza. There was one guy there, he was a bit of a sulky guy, to be honest. You know, you could just see he was the sort of guy at four in the morning at a party, it's just bumming everybody out, you know what I mean? Well, but to he... give you perspective, he's the type of guy that took a shit on the bus with no running water, that we had to travel in that bus for eight hours. That's the type of guy that is. Oh no, so he's quite <clears throat> an inconsiderate fellow as well. Right. I told him no, no. Oh dearie me. Well, he's I'm... absolutely brutal, but um, that was an ep <laughs> that was one of the episodes, sorry, I don't know if I should have is said that. Is he still on the show? No, he, um, that was one of the episodes that I found really hard to digest because we did log heads at the start, but we actually had an amazing experience. Like we all came out of it thinking that we'd actually won it, but they didn't show that. They showed the conflict and then pretty much radio silence within the challenge, which made us look as if we weren't communicating. But we actually genuinely at the end of it, we're all hugging and giving all the high fives and that because we thought that we had won it. So it's kind of when you're signing up to this, you're signing up to manipulation. You're signing up to being portrayed in a light that is entertaining from the viewer's perspective. And that is all baked into the agreement when you do it, whether it's written in the contract or not. I mean, this is something I've got experience with in terms of <clears throat> I've been a talking head on different documentaries and stuff like that through the years. And, and it took me time to get wise to it because I was always noticing, hang on, man, I remember like, I remember smiling there in that part, or I remember <laughs> cracking a joke, and all the time it would be portrayed like I was. It would be the most angriest take, or even sometimes, you know, Stephen Bennett, who is a brilliant director and probably my best collaborator in terms of the work that we've produced. 
but he knows how to get a performance out of me because he can see it for the viewer's point of view. So there'll be sometimes where I'm pretty sure I've nailed it in one take mm -hmm. and he's like, nah, and he'll poke me. Mm -hmm. It's like poking a bear yep. because he want, he, think, he thinks this is a moment where we need a crescendo of passion. But, but, but where other people see passion, I just see myself looking pure angry and it's no, doesn't feel like a reflection. And then also when I've had times where we've been working with vulnerable people and it's took us a long time to be able to persuade them to take part because of their experiences, either doing media stuff or of what's happened with other poverty porn shows that have portrayed their areas poorly, the scheme, for example, yeah. and trying to build that trust and have that duty of care. We're at the point where we've even taken footage to people to show them it in their house to say look this is what we want to show how do you feel about this and listen to what they're frightened in that and then that means when the thing goes out all these people are behind it and they support it and it gives it even more authority but it just seems like part of the deal with reality tv is that it's kind of disposable yeah. and therefore that sort of disposability uh it, it transcends every dimension of it including the people who take part in it I probably should have read the contract before I signed it. Which Typical working class rookie error <laughs> in it. <laughs> I'm like, how bad can it be? And I mean, overall, it wasn't that great an experience. It's like you say, it is basically just exploitation to its maximum. Um, I something I wasn't comfortable with. Like, I think they knew that I was switched on to it though. Cause like say on one of the challenges, we all came up with an idea and this other guy kept going on about his idea. And then Gordon would come in and be like, basically saying that our idea was terrible and his idea was great. But I kept saying to him off the camera, you're fucking doing this on purpose. But they kind of knew that I had clocked that. So I think they just kept fueling me and fucking putting batteries in me constantly because they knew that I'd be kicking up all the time. So it's kind of a hard watch because like I know how I felt versus how I'm portrayed and it's kind of hard to see yourself like that. I think it's a bit <laughs> like how a football manager kind of like coaches a team and then coaches players individually based on all of their attributes, their, their defects and tries to get the best performance out of them. And it seems like once they've got a measure of you, then they just send in Gordon. Do you know I, what I mean? The producer said to me at one point, oh, you're my favourite. And I remember that night thinking, oh, that's great. And then like I was taking a pee and I was like, no, that's no. That's actually a bad thing. If I'm his favourite, it means he's getting the most reaction out of me. Uh, and it kind of changed it all for me. I was like, this is how they get us in the literary world and all that. This is how they get us to travel to award shows. They make us think that we've got a chance. <laughs> <laughs> they make us think, no, fair, I've done all right with the awards, right? But at the same time, uh, what last one I was at, we were all there. It was all kind of vague language. Do you know what I mean? And then you get a wee moment with the person that's running it. You think, oh, they like me. Do you know what I mean? This is a show in and all of that. You're rehearsing your gracious victory speech in your head. <laughs> and the thing is, it was over two days of events. Do you know what I mean? The last one I was up for. And so we were down there meeting all the other authors. They were all really nice. And then uh, then the next day it was the awards. And right in the queues were going up for the, to, to do the ceremony. Literally, I was about to get called out. These two authors just appear out of nowhere that won the part of the event and they've traveled for halfway around the world. And you're like, ah, no way did they travel halfway around the world I if they didn't nothing. know they were going to win. And when it got announced that they won, they didn't even look surprised. They didn't even look shocked. It was just money in the bank. Do you know what I mean? And I was just like, ah, fair enough. Right, fair <laughs> enough. But shy, also, though. I just feel like, I feel like it would be good to get some kind of clue. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so I'm working on the, the, the assumption now that if you don't get told, You've won, you've no one. 
So fucking don't go. <laughs> um, no, the, I, I wanted to kind of get into, you know, just bouncing off of some of the, the, the criticism that you dealt with and what the roots of that were. Because obviously, we're no for everybody. Some people <clears> will take a dislike to us no matter what. But I think there are obviously, there are kind of, there are quantifiable reasons why people have adverse reactions in the first instance to people. One of the biggest ones in the UK is accent prejudice. And, and, and a kind of Scottish accent ranks quite highly on the irritation stakes for people across the UK, despite Scotland being regarded as a kind of friendly place, particularly Glasgow. Um, I didn't realise how Scottish I sounded until I heard myself back on the TV and I was like, fucking hell. Yeah, so... I really fucking Scottish. So imagine somebody down kind of southeast England. Um, they're making some assumptions just about you being Scottish, right? That you're angry, you're aggressive, you're pushy. I seen a lot of people accusing you of bullying, which I didn't see uh, on I didn't see it present on on screen or anything like but that. But see, in in that circumstance, see if you sit back, you get told that you're not contributing. But if you say too much, you're too you're too this. It's like you're fucked if you don't fucked if you don't. That's really the but, kind of conclusion. But that the I most do. Scottish you sound is also we perceive it as being the more common you sound and all. So you, you feel as if you need to up your game a wee bit and drop certain words. Well, you'll notice from like the first, like, there's like an interview that I go and get done where it's like complete phone voice is on. And then after that, I just sound like me because I've heard myself and I'm like, that's not me. I'm just going to just have aye. my normal voice. Aye. When you were, uh, when you were writing the book, there's a kind of challenge, I think, for any writer that's <clears> dealing with local people, local sounds, local narrative is that you want to represent that authentically in every single facet of what you're doing, but also the thing has to be readable and not impenetrable. And as Scottish people, particularly in our part of the country, we speak very fast. Our stuff is laden with lots of kind of in-references that you only really get if you grow up here. And so did you have challenges at certain points in terms of um, how you were conveying the specificity of this experience of Frankie, while also trying to make sure that it was it, it was wider and more accessible for people. Well, I think it's difficult because when you're you're taught to read in Irish school, I hate this term, right? But you're taught in the Queen's English, so you're taught to write in a certain way. And when you're kind of putting in colloquialisms or Scottish words thereafter, you feel as if you're letting yourself down in some respects. Uh, there's got to be an authenticity when you're writing it though, as you say, you've, it's got to be real. So when you're writing certain bits, I find there might be half a page like the Queen's English in the next bit, I've kind of went a bit more Scottish or a bit more common. And it's just, you can't really convey it in an, an authentic way without doing that though. And I remember there was a bit in it, I put he went to the toilet and he pished. And my <laughs> wife was like, because you want to say something different there? I'm like, well, how can you say different? That's what I would say if I was I, my mate. I remember going, that bit. I'm going for a pish. So I mean, to me, that's not being... I'm not trying to lay it on thick there to make myself sound Scottish or tough or anything like this. What I would say to my mates, Aye. it's like there's certain stuff I've been brought up with, like there's certain rhyming slangs we use, like for money, for example. I've always used like a score for 20 quid. Most people do, right? That I know, or a skydiver for a fiver or 10 bob for 50 pence. And to me, most people use that stuff, right? And I think out with my world, when I have to say in working stuff, like people think you're trying to crack a joke, I'm, I'm just talking how I talk. Do you know what I mean? I'm not talking about doing or I'm no trying to be funny here. There's certain stuff you just say day to day. Another one I noticed was when I was writing the police, the police just didn't sound right in it. It has to be the police or mm -hmm. another kind of <laughs> term for the local police force, shall we say, right? <laughs> but, 
the, the police just didn't sound right. It seems as if it was a bit too posh or a bit too didn't have been authentic. Uh, so I think you can write the kind of emotions in the storyline and just normal English, but when you're talking about when he's talking or certain bits and bobs, you've got to be authentic and put it like it is. I am. Uh, I remember that bit that your your uh, partner pointed out because the, the first time you read it, it is an interesting kind of juxtaposition, right? But then once you've dealt with it the first time, you get into the rhythm of the book. Do you know what I mean? So Aye. any other instances of that, you're like, know, well, this is the universe of language that we're in, and these are the these are the things that are coming up. Um, the one of the things that came through very strong was the themes. Uh, and and some of them are more obvious, but then there's a real subtlety to them as well of of recovery and the role that alcohol and mind and mood alter and substances plays. Not necessarily just in the carnage, but there are some real interesting like value shaping, profound experiences that we can have before we decide that it's time to stop. Mm. And I thought that these, uh, what 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 for me having never been involved in the casual scene at all. Uh, obviously been into football right up until I was about 18 or 19 and then fell away with it when I got into drinking and music. But these experiences where you're describing, uh, you know, Frankie, main character's uh, first ecky, um, or, you know, tripping for the first time. And these were really, really vivid for me um, because, you know, they changed me in a positive way. And if I could have got in and out quickly, I'd have been happy. But that's the thing. These things are so good that we keep doing it until it's rubbish. Can you just <laughs> talk about some of the recovery themes in the book and also whatever you're comfortable, how that relates to your experience yep. and, and why you felt it was important to put in the book? Back to the casual thing for a minute, what I deliberately didn't do in relation to casual, there's loads of books out there where people talk about football casuals and it's solely about a football casual story, right? But it's all... It's always at the other end of that where it's a bravado side of things. It's always kind of focusing more on the violence and it's focusing more on big away days where there was big clashes and all that kind of stuff. And some people like that stuff up and that's fine, right? What I tried not to do was make it about this character being ultra macho or he was being some sort of hard man. I wanted to make him average everyday Joe who had fear behind that. He did have some self-doubt about stuff and stuff like that, right? Where he wasn't just like a one-dimensional character. So growing up within the casual scene, as you say, talking when it moved on, where ecstasy came about, right? Stuff tends to go in cycles when you look at fashion, right? Back to the 60s with the hippies moving into mod, mod sorry, moving into the hippies kind of thing. I happened again in my era where the football casual was kind of a macho scene. Then when Acid House came along, it changed a big, and overnight where ecstasy came along and the culture just became a bit peace and love suddenly. So what I was trying to write about there was, his change from the football casual thing moving into Acid House and he took that lot of duck to water as you say, you can't date once and all day again, mm. right? And there is some fantastic times in that and personally speaking, I had some of the best times in my life in my late teens experiencing loads of that stuff. But thereafter, there's a price to be paid because if you've got the mindset I've got or the personality type that I've got or whatever you want to look at it like, I'm going to do some stuff to extreme. So years down the line for that, there's going to be some kind of price to pay where your mental health's damaged by it or it's affecting your relationships, whatever it might be. And the character in the book, Frankie, moves on where he's using alcohol as a crutch thereafter until he finds recovery in his late 20s. And again, that was my experience. And what I wanted to weave through it was a bit of demise going through there. And the second part of the book is really a journey of self-discovery, I suppose. Because mm. I think when you're growing up in that culture, you can build up loads of different layers of denial and 
you can paint a picture that makes you sits better with you. Do you know what I mean? Something you can live with. Aye, you've partied harder than everybody else. That's how I'm the way I'm. Or my uh, trauma, or I've been through. And the thing exactly. is, the, the character's got a fair range of plausible reasons that could explain mm. why they've ended up mm. in the state that they're in. But ultimately, it comes down to taking responsibility, doesn't it? Aye, definitely. But what I wanted to show in the book was about a young and the yang with him and his mate. Because his mate comes to a background where he's got two loving parents. Um, he's got a house at night that's a calm, relaxing atmosphere where he can um, he can go back to his cave a wee bit and he can retreat and he's got this nice place to go back to. Whereas Frankie, the character, has got back to an alcoholic parent who's violent, who's aggressive, who's critical towards him all the time. And I want to show how it shaped the two of them differently. Mm. How he was more attracted to using drinking drugs thereafter because he felt anxious all the time. He felt as though he was on high alert all the time. So... He's more prone to go towards drinking more often. Do you know what I mean? Where his friends no go to that because under a natural state, his friends quite relaxed. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And the the trauma thing is very prevalent at the moment in the recovery circles. And I wanted to highlight some of that stuff and weave that through the book and look at the causes and conditions really. Mm -hmm. And just before I come back to, to to Rachel, there's there's a one of the things that I found really interesting in 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 the book was. Uh, I think it's maybe about I can't remember exactly what place it is but it's like a questionnaire do you know mm. what I mean where the character's being confronted with some questions to self-identify and while obviously this works narratively in the book it kind of jumps off the page as well you know it's all the questions like uh, do you plan to drink blah 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 all of that sort of stuff and I can see that uh, you know working on another level for a reader who might be for the first time confronted with some of the reality of their drinking or using because where that sits in the book the readers already kind of opened up to the book and then may maybe opened up to questioning what what's going on for them in terms of their drink or their drug use do you know what i mean uh, the, the the bit that you've just spoke about is probably the bit that most people have spoken to me about since i brought it out mm. most people who have brought the conversation in the book, they get to that bit pretty soon and say, I read the 20 questions. I could answer about 10 of them myself. And I think, well, when I answered them the very first time, that is a legitimate thing, right? When I answered them the first time myself, I qualified for a guy who definitely had issues with alcohol, but probably rereading them about a year later, I probably ticked another few because of that layers of denial I made up and tried to twist the story, make myself look a bit more innocent. But what I think it really highlights is though the cultural the cultural relationship Scotland's got with alcohol and how people just completely accept stuff that I find unacceptable now. See, because I've been away from alcohol for such a long period of time and I look at how many people just accept this is what life is. Saturday, Friday and Saturday you get drunk, it's not for question. Um, you feel rough on Mondays and um, you, you don't remember bits of your week and that's what people kind of live their life like constantly and nobody really questions that because alcohol's just kind of so steeped in their culture, everybody just accepts this is the way it is. Do you know what I mean? And I think um, majority of people reading them will answer a fairly chunk of them, yes, but nobody really does anything about it. It's yeah, just like, it's a process, it so isn't it? You need to mm. kind of crash and burn a few times and then your mind starts to open a wee bit. Uh, Rachel, I just want to bring bring you back in and maybe focus on some of the positive aspects that may have come out of this recent experience, apart from obviously your insights into what goes on behind the curtain of reality television. Um, you run a business, this is a challenging thing to do in, a in any economic context, but particularly now. Um, so has there been any kind of, uh, have you had any sort of bounce in business since the show came out? I mean, I follow your Facebook profile, so, you know, I'm seeing the 
my brownies have sold out or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? I thought maybe that there was maybe a, a wee bit of heightened awareness locally for you or maybe some local support in the face of... It's hard to really gauge it, right? Because obviously winter's shit for everybody in hospitality. So there has been like a peak, but I'm still not back to what I was making like a year and a half ago. Like people's behaviours have changed. Definitely COVID's had something to do with it. So it's hard for me to actually quantify if it's off the back of the show or not. But um, there's been a few positives, but it's mainly about me and my self-development. Like, I would never have felt comfortable coming and doing something like this hadn't I put myself into the Shark Tank environment of TV. Like, mm. I was never able to publicly speak, too scared, too worried about judgment, all of that kind of stuff. So that's a positive for me. And um, going into the show, I just, me and my boyfriend at the time, had just split up. I found out he'd been cheating on me with one of my friends. And going into that show, I was at rock bottom. So now when I'm getting all the kind of memories on Facebook and even thinking back to it when I'm watching myself on the TV to know the mental space I was in then to now. So really everyone else's opinion doesn't really matter. It's more about what I've got back from it personally that matters. So I'd say that's the biggest positive that's came out of it. Yeah, because people don't really know. And I guess this is as true as like maybe a couple of the other contestants that we've been a wee bit mean about as well. Nobody knows what's going on behind the scenes in a person's life and while that is it seems like a kind of cliche obvious thing to say it's 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 very hard to keep that in mind when you're watching somebody on tv because there is that kind of disposable aspect of tv and entertainment and a very specific thing is being portrayed Definitely. so you 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 were obviously going in there it was a high stress environment highly competitive and 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 the process in itself is constantly bringing you into a state of self-consciousness which is in of itself quite difficult and painful because you're seeing yourself as you see you, you're seeing yourself as an audience might see you, you're trying to reconcile these two competing types of personality which should be on display, all the while obviously going through kind of heartache and stuff like that, betrayal in your own personal life. And and it must just come a point where it's just like, I've had experiences myself when I'm on the camera and I'm like, ah, hey, politicians better get something done about this drug crisis. And then I'm away to the motor to get my Sopadine Max, you know what I mean? I rattle a few so that I, I don't start shaking before we have to travel to some random place, you know what I mean? So nobody really knows what's happening behind the scenes. No, they don't. Like, I was literally crying myself to sleep every other night. Like, it was fucking horrible. Like, my mate actually let me listen to a few voice notes that I'd sent or that I've completely forgotten that I'd even sent and to hear it and it's raw state like Is that, it you upset? It's me like and I am literally broken like me and my ex-boyfriend being together for the best part of five years we've both got children the same age that we live together house everything he nearly died the previous December because he punched a window on a night out and severed his main artery in his arm which I saved his life in the street to have that betrayal and to have to go through that knowing fine well that I was about to go on to the biggest potential platform that anyone could really get like top chef in the world on telly for me it was like a make or break situation there was no way I was going to pass up on it mm. so I am I'm happy I'm actually proud of myself for the first time because I'm very self-critical like it's always for me I'm never achieving enough never getting far enough but I thought I would go on it and be like financially rewarding and that's the biggest thing that I would get from it it's actually not been it's been a, like a journey about me finding me and me reintroducing 
myself to like me and everyone else around me mm. so that's like i that's the best thing that could have came out of it i mean as far as life goes it is a kind of unusual experience isn't it so it's like if you're trying to cram Definitely. in a lot into your life you might as well throw a bit of that in, into the mix as well plus i was away from my business i had like left the reins of my business to my mum essentially who's never worked in hospitality and i left my kid with my mum for nine weeks to just go and do this meanwhile absolutely broken so i i think if you're ever gonna do a bit of searching that's what it's going to be at uh well certainly time to hear yourself think if you're not having to look after the kid man like could we talk about that yeah, quickly yeah. as well just because it's 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 something i think that uh people feel uh they feel quite they feel quite challenged to talk openly about it the challenges of trying to create a life for your kids and also how that competes with how you actually raise your kid so the things that you need to do to give your kid opportunities in life sometimes take you away from the kid or sometimes you're physically there but you're not as present Mentally as you would there. like to be and i know from my own i mean honest pretty much every day i put my kids to their to their bed they play the real i play them relaxing music to help them kind of like self-soothe at night and then when i'm walking past their bedroom and that like it might be the, the theme from up or something something quite emotional right and I just stand at their door and I just replay the movie in Mahida all the times I was short with them, all the times that I should have showed more interest and in fucking mind them and things like Minecraft and Pokemon that I'm just not into. And I just run it all in my mind and I just think I'm really letting them down. Do you know what I mean? And then another part kicks in where it's like, well, not a good dad wouldn't you worry about Aye, whether yeah. he's a bad dad. Yeah. A bad dad's just out there, man, like just fucking doing his, doing his thing. them to doors and going, fucking get to sleep. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. So it's just like, it's it's like, uh, what has your experience been? Because you're trying to run a business. You're trying to raise a kid. Well, I had Lucy, so I fell pregnant to a guy who basically was like nine years younger than me, who was like 21 and I was like 30. <laughs> right okay so not planned then not planned at all but i was 30 and i was thinking she might be like the next beethoven or something so i should probably just go for it because right. i'm 30 so right. like i decided i was going to do it he said he was going to be there but i mean like any 21 year old would never have been able to fully understand the undertaking because i didn't at 30 understand what i was getting myself into so i basically went and had her drove myself there drove myself home to an empty house and went back to my work four days later with her on me and we've wow. not we've not fucking wow. stopped so she doesn't know anything other than this life of like sacrificing time for maybe like better stuff but to her all she really gives a fuck about it's me so i'm trying to find that balance but i made a conscious effort now i put my phone away when i go in because mm. i know i only see her from like four to nine so I'm like, I'm putting my phone away because I know when I'm at home, I'm like doing emails, you know what it's like, reaching out to people, talking to people, fucking doing your books, all of that. So I made a conscious decision to put my phone away now. And even just that small change, I've noticed a difference in her and a, probably a difference in the level of guilt that I'm feeling. Because I get that, like, shout at them or raise your voice, you feel rotten, go to your bed crying. <laughs> just, uh, it's a juggling act. Uh, it, it, it can be challenging. Uh, we'll just kind of head into the final furlong then, right? Um, and I wanted to touch on just the practicalities, right, of having, having, I'm not making assumptions here about your backgrounds or what you've been through. No, I have a, a rough idea of sort of where you've come from on things. Um, and some of that, I know if you're talking to you, some of that and fair through just observing you. And one of the things that, that, uh, comes up generally when I've talked to people from a background that's not necessarily super privileged as they set out on a path in life 
and they've got tunnel vision in terms of the thing that they want to get to, right? Or they stumble on it at a certain point and they think this is what it's about. I'm doing this creative work or I'm going to try and achieve this. And then they realise actually 50% of that is loads of peripheral stuff that you didn't think of, bureaucratic stuff, emails, having to talk to people, loads of stuff that you didn't really bake in when you set out on a certain path. I mean, like a, a lot of my energy and life is taken up dealing with things that I find very difficult. The creative stuff is easy. It's all the other stuff, certain planning things, uh, talking to people, try to convey the idea to somebody else so they can support it, but you're no fully formed on what your idea is. And it's like talking in Mandarin to somebody. And so I just wonder, like, because I think a lot of people watching will identify with this. They can get caught up in that small stuff and then they don't go for the bigger goal because they just start to feel overwhelmed with the other kind of mere mind them and essential tasks and all that. So just kind of throw this open to both of you. Have you got, do you identify with some of what I've just described there? Even as the process of writing a book, was there things about it that you thought, fucking hell, this is actually harder than I thought it was going to be. And how do you overcome that? How do you overcome those challenges and mental hurdles as you're trying to get to a sort of end point? Well, I, I think, I don't know anybody else wrote a book apart for you, right? So if I was a joiner, I was a plumber, there's loads of guys on lot of joiners and plumbers, right? Working class people were loads of them are in the building game. So you could just turn to one of them and go, right, I'm embarking on this journey joinery. What did you do? How did you get on it? But I had to really wing everything myself. Do you know what I mean? You can Google stuff these days and give tips on it, right? But I really just winged the whole lot of myself and wrote it and then Googled it and put it to publishers and I didn't know what I was doing. And you can see how you're very vulnerable to getting bumped or ripped off in some kind of way because you go, oh, that's fantastic, mate. He's four grand and we'll get it out there for you. And all that kind of stuff's out there, and you really don't know. Um, vultures, man. Aye, vultures are out there. Plus, I, th I do think there is a working class thing, and I would be like this myself when I was younger. I know, but you're really encouraged to do that because people don't want to get you above your station in some ways. Do you know what I mean? It's like, all right, mate, you've wrote a book, don't get above your station, or who does he think he is? And they might never have spoken to you since you brought the book, and you've not changed one bit, but they think, oh, I big man, eh? So, I don't know if I've really encouraged to do stuff like that. It just seems unobtainable, is in some respects. So, I knew nothing about it, do you know what I mean? And it's a learning process just to find it on yourself, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And how did it feel when you held the the kind of proof copies in your hand? Because that was always a big moment for me, driving me through the absolute thick fog of self-doubt was just think of the moment that the box comes that's got the proof copies in it and you're physically holding this thing that started out as an idea. Do you know what I mean? Was that was that a big moment for you? Ah, it was surreal. It was pretty surreal, particularly because the, the photograph on the front cover, the publisher gives you some example, photographs to pick for a website, there's thousands of them in there, right? But I wanted it to look gritty and to reflect football in the 80s or the 90s in Scotland and they never really had anything that was like the vision I had. Mm. Ah, exactly. It was kind of like you put football in and it was these bright floodlit stadiums in Spain and stuff and I was like this, none like it. So my mate Sean Bailey took the photographs for us. Um, shout out to Sean. Big shout out to Sean, top notch photographer and mm. all round good guy. <laughs> yep. So big Sean took the photos. He he had a camera when we were on holding for he's a bit of a part time photographer. So I just met him outside for part one day and we just messed about and he done his thing and that's the one we used. We sort this up for the benefit of the the viewers. And what I like about this as well is obviously it kind of meets the quota for having that sort of that image that you want, but then it's also the, the, there is something kind of gentle about it as well. Do you know what I mean? With the wee tattoo in the arm yep. and something kind of vulnerability about it. 
and I think that it's all that, that's what's missed with a lot of the modern media depictions of working class culture because it's always viewed for a distance and people focus on the more gregarious or violent aspects of it. Um, but I think what the book captures really well is the vulnerable underside of a lot of this sort of stuff as it relates to individuals, families, uh, and communities as well. Uh, I'll just throw that 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 question that I put to Ian open to you if you you want to take a stab at it. What was that again? So I was just talking about you've got the kind of idea in your head. There's a lot of people out there and they're probably sitting thinking it's time for me to pull the trigger on this idea that I've got, and then they come against the first hurdle, which is they get disillusioned because they think it's all just about the creati creativity and actually they get kind of they get kind of scared off by a lot of the other grind of it all. I don't think that I've ever been put off by the grind. I think that that's almost what's most appealing about it. Um, probably stemming back to my childhood, my dad was chronically on my back about I would never be a, an achiever just because I wasn't academic. So I think that that's probably been a subconscious driving force for me. So I don't really get put off by the hurdles because I know they need to be jumped in order to get to the next place. My biggest problem with all of this is probably when's it going to stop? And I don't think I'm ever going to be satisfied. Like It's not even about the monetary aspect for me. It's more about me just feeling like I'm constantly getting better. Aye, so I don't really know. And, and it, you, you, you think, you think, one day I'm going to reach this sweet spot. It's a plateau, a clearing in the in the forest, and it'll be like, ah, I've arrived. I'm, I'm just going to settle here. And then you actually look into the world and you see, like, the psychopathic boardroom executives who just won't take an hour off work. And you just think, man, they've got all the money in the world. They've got all the respect in the world. They've got the power and all that. And the man, these guys just are scared to stop working, man, because there's still something out there that they think that they've got to achieve. So I guess there's a balance to be struck, isn't there, between recognising you have a drive and a determination to do things, cultivating that, and then also recognising, like, uh, if that's driving if that's driving you at an extent where it might be unhealthy, to also take a wee breather and kind of look at that stuff as well. I think that's where my daughters probably came in and grounded me at a point where I needed it because probably without her, I would have became one of those psycho boardroom nutters. Mm -hmm. So I am thankful for her because I need to take that time. I know mm -hmm. I've got a set amount of time in the day where I need to get my shit done and I can't do it anymore. So I mm -hmm. shout out to Lucy for yeah, the grounding. Big up, Lucy. <laughs> See, I, I don't know if that's a generational thing. I kind of feel as if I'm at the opposite end of that school because I never had any drive when I was younger or any ambition. I just feel as if you get a job somewhere like the council or whatever as you work in, you just get this wage and then blah, blah, blah. And that was life. It wasn't until later on in life where I go over some of that stuff like other people think of you and that where you go and you think, oh, wait a minute, I can do other stuff here. There is other opportunities here and there's other there's another life path for you. Um, and I think now I'm going to be a bit more driven now I'm a bit older. Yeah, I can resonate with that though because I was, up until I was 23, I was just working for other people and didn't really have much of that until my dad died. We just got a phone call out of the blue. He had to drive down. He was on a life support machine and I had to turn it off at 24. And I was working for Claudia Schiffer at the time in London as a PA. And at that moment, I realised I'm not going to work to run somebody else's life. I'm going to go and have a shot at it. And it's been since then. So I think maybe it's just those pivotal moments. Mm. And some people never get those moments where they realise their full potential. The hero journey moment, the belly of the beast moment, ain't it? Mm. It's uh, someone shot Uncle Ben. You're going to have to become a superhero moment. <laughs> On that note, I think we'll just kind of wind things up. I just want to thank you both for, for uh, a good humoured, 
uh, educational conversation. Uh, thanks to Paul, who's behind the boards there, who sets up all this here in the green room uh, and is very meticulous in the process. So we're grateful to him for the effort that he puts in. Pick this book up. We can get it online right now. The boy with the thorn on his side. Amazon is probably the simplest place uh, for you to get it. And I can confirm there is no uh, cinnamon flavored lubricants mm. available there. <laughs> uh, they're out of stock for some reason. Um, and I'm sure that Ian would be really happy to get uh, your your feedback, positive, constructive, whatever you call it. Uh, and 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 I do think that that I'd, I'd personally feel like you have a future uh, doing this professionally. Um, and like all people from our kind of backgrounds, just needs to be supported in the right way uh, that's specific to you. So I look forward to hopefully contributing in some small way to, to that that uh, that journey continuing. Um, and thanks very much for sharing. So openly, I wasn't expecting you to kind of, you know, take it there with some of the things that you shared. And I certainly wouldn't be kind of probing you to do that. No, so that's just me. I, I'm, I'm grateful to you uh, for your openness. And actually, there are benefits to having uh, a, a younger partner of your kid, you know, because it means the kid and the, they'll, they'll be into the same things. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Little mix, tango. You could get childcare for the both of them. Do you know what I mean? Minecraft. May get a two for one deal on the childcare. Robots. Uh, anyway, I'm just joking, all right? No. I'm, I hope he's not an absolute nutcase. Do you know what I mean? No. All right, big man. <laughs> no, I'm the nutter. He's <laughs> okay, I'm glad we've cleared that up then. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Please subscribe. Uh, share the shit out of this. We are working on getting audio versions of all of the podcasts and episodes that we've done so far. So stop tweeting us about it. Right, because we're just doing this in our own time just now. A uh, couple of things before I go, I want to direct your attention to tickets for our run at the Fringe, Common People's Run at the Fringe, are available now. So we'll be running from the 12th to the 19th in the big stand club on George Street. Uh, we're hoping to secure a couple of big name guests at the very least and pairing them up with maybe some less well-known but no less interesting and insightful guests. Similar format to kind of what you've been seeing here. And ultimately, we need you to buy tickets and go along to that, right? Don't wait until the big names get announced. You want to get your ticket now so that you can say, I ah, well, I was into this before. You know, <laughs> you can you can be right specific and arsey about it. And the final thing I'll draw your attention to is obviously I'm still touring extensively throughout the United Kingdom. <laughs> uh, but I want to direct your attention to the final show, uh, which is in Glasgow on the 28th of July and it'll be getting filmed. It'll be the final show. So I would love you to be there, be part of the buzz of the audience and help us just go out with a bang. Uh, and on that note, I think I'll just leave it there for today. Have a great day, whatever the hell you're doing. And if you're having a shite day, I hope it gets better. Peace. <laughs>